0: And so we ask that right now you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts as we come to your word, that you speak to us through your word, and that you enable us to receive your wonderful love afresh today. Father, we pray that you be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Okay, good morning. Um, We have two readings, scripture readings for this morning um, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New Testament. Our Old Testament reading is um, Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God presides in the great assembly, he renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Our New Testament reading is John 10:22 through 39. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We are stoning you for any, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be god jesus answered them is it not written in your law i have said you are gods if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and scripture cannot be set aside what about the one whom the father set apart as his very as his very own and sent him into the world why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because i said i am god's son do not believe me unless i do the works of my father But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, everyone. One of the great things about living in St. Andrews is that there's so many uh, different seasons of our community and different seasons of our church life. And we've now entered into the season where the students are gone, and then where the schools are on school holiday, so a lot of the families are gone. So it's actually, I actually really enjoy this a time where there's always a bit of a smaller, quieter time in our community, and then of course everything's going to be absolutely. Insane this week <laughs> with with the open coming, but if you are here over the next month um, when there's not as many people around, um, we, we we just want to uh, just make sure if if anyone's feeling lonely, if anyone is struggling to connect with people, please do reach out. We'd love to spend time with you. I think this can be a really nice relaxing time for some, especially with families, but it can also be a bit of a lonely time. Um, If you're living here um, and, uh, yeah, are seeing lots of people go away for the summer. So please do reach out if you'd like to be connecting with us, spending time together or whatever. So this is our second sermon in this series that we have begun with a Taylor Swift reference, okay? I don't understand why Taylor Swift has gotten such a hold on this church. I'm very opposed to that, okay? I am opposed to Taylor Swift. It's a major point of conflict in our house. That was Becky just throwing something to the ground in rage because she loves, she is a full-on Swifty, and I am deeply, in the depths of my being, opposed to Taylor Swift. Um. And so just to prove that point, I'm going to criticize her right now. No, I'm just kidding. Taylor, Swift, My children completely agree with Becky. They think they always are shaking it off or whatever Taylor Swift people do. But this, this little quote uh, was kind of floating around the Internet. You can see I captured it from, from a tweet myself. This is a screenshot from my phone. Um, but Swift gave the commencement address at New York University. And this line drew a lot of attention for good reason because it kind of succinctly captures the way in which many of us view the self, view what it means to be free. Swift says, I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. It's totally up to be up to you who you are, who you're going to be, and where you should want to go. Is that true? Are we the sort of creatures that can define ourselves? that can elect, that can choose who we should be, how we should act, what we should live for, and what will make us fulfilled and happy? We might intuitively say yes. In fact, what Swift is putting here in powerful kind of popular level terms terms, is the heart of a kind of revolution in the way in which modern people view the self. I could give a lot of examples of this, I won't drone on about this, but there's a famous book that is called like, something like The Oration on the Dignity of Man, and a famous Renaissance philosopher retold the story of creation. He actually told the story as if, God, as if he was God speaking to Adam. The story of creation got something wrong. It needed to be retold. And this is what he said. This is what God says to Adam. The nature of other creatures is confined within the bounds prescribed by us, as in by God. But you, humans, who are confined by no limits, shall determine for yourself your own nature in accordance with your own free will. What he was saying is, if we're really going to be free, we have to, just like Swiss said, be able to decide... Decide who we are. Decide what will make us happy. We have to, in essence, be able to create our self from scratch. Karl Marx made it even clearer, and he's just an example of, again, this kind of modern view of the self. It says, a being, a person, anything only considers himself independent when he stands on his own feet. And he only stands on his own feet when he owes his existence to himself Whereas a man who lives by the grace of another is dependent, but I live completely by the grace of another if he has created my life. Marx rightly saw where this view was going. If I need to be able to define myself, to create myself, to determine who I am, how I'm meant to live, and what will satisfy me, what is, in essence, the good life for me, then I have to be completely independent. No one can have made me or created me or try to force me into any box, and so I must literally create myself. I cannot be the product of any creator who tells me who and what I'm meant to be. Now, if we're Christians, how will we be tempted to respond to this? I think there's an automatic temptation when Christians hear this sort of view of the self, the idea that everything should revolve around me, that everything should be about what makes me happy, that I get to decide who I am and how I should live. Christians are tempted to respond very negatively, to say it's not about you, it's about God. It's not about your glory, it's about his. They might even be tempted to say, in fact, um, it's not up to you how you should live, you're sinful. And you can't save yourself. We're tempted to think that the problem with modern man is he has too high a view of his own humanity. And he needs to be brought down to earth. there's something to that, but I suspect that it's also somewhat misguided. And the reason is quite simple. What is the product of this modern view of the self? What results from a culture which says, do anything that makes you happy. Don't let anyone tell you how should, you should live. Don't let anyone tell you what your obligations are, or what you should do. You need to do whatever satisfies you. Create yourself from scratch. Don't listen to tradition. Don't listen to the past. Do whatever feels good. What's the result? Is the result people that are incredibly fulfilled and happy and self-satisfied and healthy? There was a really interesting article that my wife sent me in The Guardian this week. And there's a lot of different components to it. It was about kind of alternative approaches to medicine in the UK. And some of it were things that seemed strange to me that I don't really understand. So I'm not endorsing this article per se. But what was super fascinating is that it says there is a rise across the UK of what's called something like social proscribing. In other words, people are going, not with mental illness per se, with physical illnesses. They're going to their GP, and part of the prescription the GP offers is he prescribes them, you need to join an art class. You need to join a walking group. You need to join a table tennis club. That was one of the examples. You need to play ping pong. This is a serious thing. Why? Isn't it weird that that needs to be prescribed? What stopped them before from going out and joining an art class, joining a walking group, joining a table tennis club? Seriously, what stopped them? Only one thing, right? What stopped them? Their freedom. They didn't, at some part of themselves, want to. They made different choices. They chose to stay in and watch television. They chose to become addicted to social media. They chose to withdraw from people around them to such an extent that going out and joining a social group seems terrifying and difficult and frightening, and they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And I'm not judging someone. We are all like this, aren't we? Every one of us. We all, by our own free choices, have created society through no one's fault but our own, where we're increasingly isolated, disconnected, unhappy, dissatisfied the command to be whoever you want and to do whatever makes you happy has left most of us filled with some sense that we are not living up, that something's wrong with us, that we aren't attaining our potential, that we're a failure, and that we can't escape on our own. So while I think it's true to say that To say that I can be a God, that I can create myself, is sinful. I don't think it's thinking too much of humans. In a weird way, it's thinking too little of them. Jesus says something very, very strange in this passage. He cites Psalm 82 and he says, I have said to you, you are gods. The ones to whom the word of God came are called by the psalmists, gods. What does that mean? Well, Jews and Christians all throughout uh, history have interpreted this verse, this verse in more or less the same way. And that idea that those to whom the word, that the, the, the people that are being referred to here or those to whom the word of God came, is part of the key. That that little passage in Psalm 82, 6, that you were meant to be sons of the Most High, but you will die like mortals, is basically a retelling of the whole story of the Old Testament in one verse. What is the story of the garden? God creates lovingly Adam and Eve, and he makes them in the image of God. He makes them in the likeness of God. The idea is not that he literally makes them God, but that he makes them God-like. And he intends them to share by gift in what he has originally by right. He wants his own, the character of his own life, a life that is harmonious, that is beautiful, that fits together, and that will never end to be shared with these people. And his word, his commands, everything he asked them to do is just the way in which they can share in that sort of divine life as a creature. And yet, what do they do? They reject his command, and they choose a different way. Why? Because they want to be gods. They want to be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. What that probably really means is they want to be able to define good and evil for themselves. They want to be able to make their own nature. Say, I know what makes me happy. You don't. So they reject his offer of life, and to secure themselves, they choose something else. But against their intentions, it leads to death. But then Jewish and Christians have noted all throughout the history, and this seems to be what's in Jesus' mind here, the same thing happens again. Only now it happens with the people called Israel. Israel is slaves. They're living a life that is almost like a living death, oppressed by a foreign people, and God rescues them. He saves them, and he says, I'm going to lead you into a land of milk and honey, honey where I will be your God and you will be my people. You'll be living life as it meant, it's meant to be lived. There'll be methods to eliminate intractable poverty. There'll be justice for all, even the poor and oppressed. Life will be returning to the way it was meant to be. And he gives them a law. He speaks another word. And that law isn't to oppress them or to judge them or to cramp them down. It's to let them share in this sort of life. And the whole way, the, if you read this law in the Old Testament, particularly a book like Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is about two ways. The way that leads to life, which is what God asks of the people, and the way that leads to death. It's constantly a question, will you choose life or will you choose death? And even before God has finished writing the laws, he's at the top of the mountain giving the law, at the bottom of the mountain, Israel has already chosen death. They make a golden calf. Why? in a weird, slightly different way, they're repeating the exact same sin of Adam and Eve. They're looking at the top of the mountain, and they're seeing this mighty God who is transcendent, and there's fire, and he's getting to define the way to life, and they're saying, no, we need something more controllable. We need an idol who doesn't tell us what to do, but who we can tell what to do. We need to be in control of the divine. In short, just like Marx, just like Adam and Eve, we need to have a divine freedom to say who we are and how we should live. And Jesus, interesting oh oh yeah, before we move on from the Psalm, what then are they condemned for? That's what's really interesting to me. What? At the heart of the psalm, is it that the psalmist representing God himself says, this is what you, Israel, and you, Adam and Eve, and in a sense, you, every human, have done wrong? Does he say, you've elevated yourself too high? Does he say, you have too high self-esteem? Does he say, you haven't listened to me? Not here. Every one of those would have been true, by the way. Every one of those would have been absolutely true. But what is the focus upon How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. And then it says all the foundations of the earth are like flipped upside down. Do you realize what they are condemned for it. They're saying, you think you're going to elevate your humanity. You think you're going to secure yourself and offer yourself life. And by exercising that freedom which you have, you have debased humanity. You have actually dehumanized yourself and your society. And I suspect this is the very sort of world we live in today. A world in which by giving into our freedom, thinking this will give us a almost God-like power and elevate us to the skies, we've actually created a profoundly inhumane world, an inhumane world that is even worse for the poor and the oppressed. And look, if I started giving examples of this, I think it would sound almost too obvious and too easy. Um, and it would sound like I'm sort of playing to, the, playing to the audience. But let's just think for one second. I mean, as Westerners, the clothes we choose to buy, the things we choose to eat, the cars we choose to drive, the lifestyles we have promise us freedom, self-actualization, what will make us happy, and they rely upon people around the world being poor and oppressed. We are free you know, there's, there's a brilliant book by Richard Bacham, former New Testament professor here, and he talks about how the car is the kind of symbol of modern freedom. Whenever you look at a car, I'm not a car person, I don't care about cars, but you know whenever you look at a, at a car commercial, where is the car? The cars usually like off in the highlands somewhere. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's like highland coups running around and the cars like going through the, spinning around the highlands. It's a symbol of freedom. I can be whoever I want. I can go wherever I want. You know, get my motorcycle. Yeah, whatever. I, I hate that. But that's what it promises. But what he points out is what kind of world does a world dominated by cars create? It creates a world where motorways cut right through the middle of cities. And communities that used to be walkable increasingly are less so. Creates a world where where public transit is increasingly less regular because so many people are going around by cars. It increases a world where that very environment you see in the commercials is more and more hard to find because we put car parks everywhere. In other words, this symbol of freedom ends up in some ways inhibiting the ability of us to have the sort of life that so many of us long for. And that's what the psalmist thinks is at issue here. You are choosing what promises you life, but actually leads to a sort of living death. This week in the Scotsman, I don't want to talk too much about the internet, but it is such a clear example of this, isn't isn't it? They did a study and the kids in Scotland that spend the most time online are the least happy. It's such a a clear example of it, because we all know this in our own lives. When you are tired after a long day of work, nothing sounds better than turning on Netflix, getting on social media, flipping through BBC Sports or whatever you prefer. And oftentimes, nothing leaves you more dead inside, more exhausted at the end of the night than that free choice of what you thought would make you happy. The whole of John's gospel is a way for Jesus to say, you know the choice that Adam and Eve had? You know the choice that Israel had? It's the exact same choice that you, my hearers, have today. And in essence, it's the exact same choice every single human creature all throughout history has. He says, you know how they heard a word from Moses, which was the word that would lead them to life? That's what my words are doing and he says what is at issue is whether you will die live this sort of living death or whether you will listen to my voice follow me and enter into eternal life that shall never perish see just to be clear when jesus says you are gods he's not somehow saying you're just as godlike as me he's not Eliminating the difference between the creator and the creature. Uh, The reason we definitely know he's not doing that is because after he says that whole things about you are gods, the Jews aren't saying, oh, you think we're all gods, great, no worries, you can say you're god, I'm a god, we're all gods, cool, great, you know, Kanye West was right, I'm a god. There's a Kanye West song for the old people called I'm a gods. No, they're even more mad and they want to stone him. Why? Because he goes on right after that to say, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What made the people around Jesus so mad is that he claimed to do what only the one true high God could do. And there's two things he did. One, he forgave sins. He said, even if you have chosen death again and again and again, you can be forgiven. But he did something else. And when we only focus on what we are saved from and not what we are saved for, we fall into the very error I was talking about at the beginning of coming to a world that pretends it's free and is actually racked with guilt and anxiety and self-loathing and we only give the bad news and we don't offer the good news. Jesus forgives sins, but what else does he do that only God can do? He offers divine, harmonious, unending life. He says, I can give you a share in that divine life which has been offered to you from the beginning. What's the application of this? What does it mean for us? I think it means two very simple things. All of this sermon um, could have been stolen from an early, was basically stolen in more uh, less good terms from Irenaeus, an early church father. He he did this exact interpretation, and he's like from the very first centuries of the church. He didn't talk about Taylor Swift, but we can forgive him that. I'm better. This is how he defines sin, sin defrauds, it's a lie, it tricks humankind of its ascent to God. We should think about sin much less in terms just of law breaking, though it is that, and much more in terms of something that is sad, that is shabby, that is unworthy, Of God's intentions for human creatures that were made to share in God's own life. Sin is not a titanic, brave, strong act of someone longing to be free. It's a sad act where we choose something small and safe instead of what we were made for. I wanted an image of this sin that might, this picture of sin that might stick with you. This is a provincially maybe slightly provocative thing to do, but I was thinking of this image. Did everybody see this at the time? It was a few months ago. Because Putin is often this symbol of, yes, he's evil, yes, he's bad, but he's a great man, you know. Whatever you say about him, he's a great titanic figure of history. He rides on horses with his bare-chested shirt off, you know, like. And this kind of revealed the real Putin to people. This man who, who projects an image of power and strength. And, and, and we don't even really know what's going on in this image. Some people think that this is his kind of weird power play. That I'm going to make someone sit opposite me at this huge long table so I can show how great I am. It's really weird and manipulative. And so someone that is deeply small and insecure and afraid of someone else and is looking for any way possible to try to elevate themselves. Some people, maybe he was, other people have, the Russian government has claimed that he was, that he didn't think Macron had tested for COVID. The French denied that. We don't know what's going on here, ultimately. But to me, it's an image of the true reality of sin behind the veneer of freedom. Of people that are frightened, that are insecure, and that are looking for any way to push themselves up. Instead of, offering, instead of receiving the offer of the way back to God through Jesus. I'm not going to go through all of these, but if we should think about sin less as titanic acts of bravery and more about something that is sad and shabby and unworthy of us, we should also think of salvation, not just of something that cancels what has gone wrong, but as something that initiates us, that brings us back into who we were always created to be. And, and the way that the church has talked about that all throughout history is so superlative, so rich, that it would make many of us blush. The psalmist is not saying that you literally become a god, it's not denying the distinction, but it's saying that salvation is so fantastic, the sword of life is so luminous, so harmonious, so unending that it can only be described in the terms of divinity. Cyril, an early church father says, the only begotten word of God, Jesus, became like us, that we too might become like him as far as is possible for humans. He became like us, that is a human being, that we might become like him, I mean gods and sons. Hundreds of years later, Someone in the Reformation named Calvin said, the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God, and if we may so speak, to deify us. And in the last century, C.S. Lewis says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. If the danger of using this kind of language is that we would miss the difference between creator and creature, which, as I said, is never even slightly eliminated because only God can give this sort of life. The danger in refusing it, in refusing to use this exalted, superlative terms for what God intends for you and I, is that we will drift to thinking that what God offers us is somehow something less than the lie of sin, when in fact it is something unspeakably more rich and beautiful and glorious. The final thought is this. There should be one huge question hanging over this whole thing because Jesus says the question for every human being all throughout history, from Adam to Israel to you and I, is will you choose the way of God which leads to life or will you choose death? And there's only one person that consistently and without reserve chose life, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, how did his life end? The one person who consistently and unendingly chose life died. Why? Why? So that those like you and I who have chosen death again and again could be offered a life we never deserved, we never earned, and we've actually rejected for ourselves time and time again. This is called the great exchange. Jesus took the death which you chose so that he could offer you a life which you never deserved. I want to take a few moments to prepare to come to the Lord's table. This table is a testament of Jesus' exchange in our place. I want to read a few words, reflecting on this as the meaning of this table, and then give you a moment of silence to prepare to receive this divine gift. We have a witness in this sacrament, in at this table that whatever is his may be called ours. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless love he has made with us. That becoming son of man with us he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. And that taking the weight of our sin upon himself, he has closed us with his righteousness. Let's prepare our hearts.